Newspeaks on the show. We're adopting FreeBSD as your open source operating system and an article explains why you should do that. How hard it is to adapt a memory allocator to Cherry, running stable diffusion on FreeBSD, self-hosting PixelFed on OpenBSD, time capsule instance using Samba, FreeBSD and ZFS, all good things tutorial-wise or not in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 529. Adapt, adopt, diffuse. Diffuse, not diffuse, but yeah. Uh, recorded on the 11th of October 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now. Find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to this week's episode. We haven't been recording in a while, although I've been uh, seeing Tom in the Oslo ha- or at the hack- Oslo Hackathon, uh, so that was quite nice. And so, actually, looking at this document, I'm kind of like, hmm, if Google ever gets really serious with the uh, self-driving cars and all, they probably will have to like rename some of their products, like Google Drive. Oh, oh, it's right. crazy! Okay. It's crazy, right? The yeah, yeah, they kind they have of Android uh, also, but they had Google Drive. Thing, yeah. They couldn't call it Android Drive because that would confuse the hell out of everyone. I never <laughs> thought of that. <laughs> yeah, so let's jump into the headlines. Uh, <laughs> this is called adopting FreeBSD as your open source operating system benefits and consideration. But this time, plot twist: it's not a Clara article. Uh, instead, it's from the Java Code Geeks website. Which is unusual. It's unusual. It's very unusual. So (laughs) let's look at that. Uh, They start with, in the landscape of open source operating systems, FreeBSD stands as a steadfast and robust choice continuing to capture the attention of organizations and individuals alike. While it might not boast the same level of mainstream recognition as some of its counterparts, FreeBSD has quietly earned its place as a dependable and highly versatile operating system. We all know that. What's even more intriguing is its increasing deployment in mission-critical use cases across various industries. Uh, While FreeBSD may not be a household name, its enduring relevance lies in its open-source nature, rock-solid stability, and adaptability to diverse computing environments. In this exploration, we delve into the reasons why FreeBSD is not just surviving, but thriving as a preferred choice for mission-critical deployments. From its core principles of freedom and flexibility, to its robust security features and exceptional performance, we uncover the factors that make FreeBSD an enduring champion in the open-source realm. Okay. Whether you are an IT professional evaluating operating system options for your organization's critical infrastructure or simply curious about the hidden gem that is FreeBSD, this journey will shed light on why it remains a stalwart choice for those who demand unwavering performance, security, and the unmatched advantages of open source. So let's uncover the compelling story behind FreeBSD's continued success in the mission-critical arena. So five key points they point out. The first one uh, for being FreeBSD as an enterprise operating system. First, it's Open Source Foundation. FreeBSD is built on a, a foundation of open source principles, providing users with unrestricted access to its source code. This transparency fosters collaboration, security, and customization, allowing enterprises to tailor the OS to their specific needs. The open source nature of FreeBSD also means that it can be deployed without costing 
licensing fees, making it an economically economically attractive option for businesses. Okay. And so they dive in even deeper into these concepts and declare, uh, explore the implications of FreeBSD's open source nature. Uh, just the uh, highlights here for this first point still. Transparent source access. Uh, freedom, freedom of choose and... Uh, oh, one more time. Freedom of use and distribution, which is the BSD license. Uh, customizing and tailoring. So you can build it to your needs, make any changes you want. Collaborative de development. So this is an active community of developers and contributors as well. Then you have global peer review, like uh, thousands of developers worldwide scrutinizing the code for security vulnerabilities and bugs. Then you have vendor neutrality, right? Where you, uh, or FreeBSD is trying very hard to uh, be vendor neutral. And the next four are cost-effective licensing, long-term viability, innovation and experimentation, as well as vendor and platform independence. Okay, so the next major bullet point from there is the rock-solid stability. And they uh, describe that as FreeBSD is renowned for its rock-solid stability and reliability. Its development process places a strong emphasis on code quality and testing, resulting in an operating system that's well-suited for mission-critical applications. This stability is a key reason why FreeBSD is favored in industries where system uptime and resilience are paramount, such as telecommunications, finance, and web hosting. And they drill down even uh, here as well, with um, you know, stability being the result of these factors and practices, code quality, rigorous testing, mature code base, system resource management, kernel separation, incremental updates, community involvement, backward compatibility, security focus, and mission-critical applications. And each of those points are described a bit further, but that would uh, blow this article uh, a bit uh, out of proportions. The third point they list here is the advanced networking capabilities. FreeBSD boasts advanced networking features, making it an excellent choice for network-centric enterprise applications. It offers high-performance network stack optimizations, support for various network protocols, and advanced firewall capabilities through the PF firewall, among other. Uh, these features are especially valuable for enterprises with complex networking requirements, including VPNs, load balancing, and high-speed data transmission. Those are uh, described in more detail in the uh, in next 10 points. High-performance network stack, support for various network protocols, Advanced firewall capabilities. Again, they list PF here. They also have a list for gels uh, for network isolation, network load balancing, virtual private networking, quality of service, high availability clustering, network monitoring and diagnostic tools, and support for high-speed networking hardware. Point number four is security and compliance where FreeBSD prioritizes security and offers a range of features to safeguard enterprise systems. Its commitment to security includes features like jails, which provide lightweight virtualization and isolation, and the OpenSSH implementation for secure remote access. Right? FreeBSD also follows best practices for security, making it suitable for organizations that need to comply with stringent regulatory requirements, kind of a tongue twister here, such as those in the healthcare and financial sectors. These are further explored in the following uh, sub-bullet points. Security-centric development, regular security updates, jails for process isolation, integrated crypto framework, OpenSSH for secure remote access, firewalls and package filtering. They list SS, uh, or PF here again. SSH wasn't the previous point. So access control list, ACLs, security event auditing, binary security updates, regulatory compliance, and community security focus. 
And fifth point they list is scalability and performance. With, you might have guessed, uh, further drilling down six other points, uh, hardware agnostic, symmetric multiprocessing, which is SMP, kernel level threading, network scalability, storage scalability, and resource isolation with jails. And in uh, performance, they list high-performance network stack, file system performance, here they should list UFS and ZFS, which they do. Efficient memory management, database performance. They list uh, Postgres and MySQL as examples here. Web server performance and optimized for multi-threading. Uh, in conclusion, uh, they say that in FreeBSD stands as a formidable choice for enterprise environments, underpinned by its open source foundation, rock solid stability, all these things we mentioned above, right? And while its unwavering stability and security features still uh, instill confidence in mission-critical operations. FreeBSD advanced networking stacks support for various protocols and robust firewall capabilities, making it a standout performer in network-centric applications. Its security features and commitment to regulatory compliance ensure that the data remains protected, making it a trusted option to, for business subjects to stringent security and privacy regulations. The scalability of FreeBSD allows it to adapt effortlessly to diverse hardware and workloads, while its optimized performance characteristics make it an ideal choice for high-traffic websites, database servers, and data-intensive applications. In an ever-growing or ever-involving digital landscape, FreeBSD stands as a reliable, adaptable, and high-performing open-source operating system, empowering enterprises to navigate all the challenges of modern computing with confidence and precision, and whether for networking infrastructure, data storage, or critical apps, FreeBSD continues to prove its worth as a stalwart companion in the pursuit of excellence in enterprise computing. And not a single word about Java, so why is this on Java Code Geeks? I, I have spent the entire time just speaking trying a to figure general this out. website now, not it's, just about Java. Well, they they have a bunch of subtopics, but I, I'm sort of perplexed. Um, they have about like a thousand people that have written for this blog, and they do like mm. community concentration. But the oh, author of this was Java Code Geeks, the website. So I don't I don't really understand it. Okay, but it's good marketing anyway. I think they'd mentioned. I mean, they got a lot of views from it, uh, but. You think they mentioned Java at some point? <laughs> yeah, at least like connect with the original uh, website's theme. I, w I wonder if this came from someone's LinkedIn or something, but but this is where Maybe. we found it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's you were the, the author news. of this at Java Code Geeks, please write to us and tell us what, why. I mean, we love it, but, but yeah, FreeBSD runs Java, by the way. Yeah, it does. <laughs> we can if we need to. Okay, next up we have an article that, that makes more sense. Um, it is by Lawrence Tratt. It comes from their blog. Uh, they are a researcher in computer languages. And the article is, How hard is it to adapt a memory allocator to Cherry? Lawrence writes, Cherry is a set of things. Adapted CPUs, adapted operating systems, adapted libraries that collectively aim to stop software bugs becoming security flaws. If you'd like to know more, I gave some of my thinking on Cherry in two stories for what is Cherry. In this post, I'm going to flash out an observation I made in that post, which is that some software needs thoughtful adaption to Cherry if we want to get the security advantages we hope for. Exactly what that thoughtful adaption might look like will vary probably substantially between different pieces of software. Start with a simple allocator. It is a truism that virtually every program needs to dynamically allocate memory. Our collective folklore tells us that allocators like DMALIC and GEMALIC are impressive pieces of software that improve on their predecessors, but very few of us can explain why. 
We call malloc, realloc, and free, and magically chunks of memory are allocated, resized, or freed on our behalf. As is often the case, one can get an insight into allocators by stripping away as much of the cleverness as possible. It turns out we can write an allocator sufficient to run some real programs in just 25 lines of C. And I'm not going to read any C here because it doesn't work well on a podcast, but you can go and read the blog post to read the C, but I think we'll be okay with that. What we've implemented is a bump allocator. Every time we want to allocate or reallocate a block of memory, we bump it. I.e. increment, the pointer stored in the variable heap. The first time that we call malloc, no heap has been allocated, so we use the operating system primitive mmap to reserve one gigabyte of RAM for our process. Lines 8, 11, I don't know why I read that. Um, because much of, because, because many systems become unhappy if you return unaligned memory, um, memory which starts on an address ending in an odd number, we ran the size requested up on my machine to the next multiple of 16 to avoid such unhappiness. Then we check if there is enough space left in the heap for the allocation, returning null if there is not. If there is enough space in the heap, then we return a pointer to the beginning of the block and bump the heap pointer. Unsurprisingly, I've cut a few corners here. Let's hope that mmap doesn't fail. Most obviously, free doesn't return memory to the heap. This is semantically correct, though it will cause programs to run out of memory rather quickly. You may also find the definition of realloc surprising because it copies however many bytes are now requested from the old to the new block. This works because our heap is contiguous, so if there's enough space for the new block, by definition, we can copy at least that many bytes from the old block. So what is this? So does this really work? Let's start with a classic binary tree benchmark, which does a lot of memory allocation. What we want to do is compare a normal allocator against our bump allocator. There are various ways we could do this, but the simplest is to pull our allocator put our allocator in a shared object and use the ld preload trick, setting the ld preload environment to point to at our shared object allows us to override the system allocator on a per execution basis. In the following video, you can see me, you know what, no one can see this, this is a podcast, at, they, they run an example in a video. Um, run the venture work on my normal desktop with OpenBSD's default system allocator, compile the bump allocator, uh, and then use ld preload to override the system allocator when I run the benchmark for a second time. Not only does it run, but it's three times faster when you run than when you run the system allocator. Before you get too excited, let's remember that the bump allocator is, to put it mildly, less general than the system allocator. That is, in general, a sensible performance comparison. There's a reference I think is quite important. It's not a sensible performance comparison. Still, it does give us a good degree of confidence that we're really running the bump allocator in the second run of the benchmark. As that suggests, it's notoriously easy to fool yourself into thinking you're testing your new allocator, Wow, I write software without bugs when you're actually running with system allocator. We won't always be able to tell easily from time which allocator we're running. So to give us some assurance for later examples in this post, we're, um, because it's fun, let's add a little segment of code to our allocator. Now when a program uses our bump allocator, it will print out how many bytes of heap were used during execution just before the program exits. Have you ever wanted to know how many bytes grep or vi allocate during execution? Now here's your chance to find out. And there's an example video. I had to be a little careful in the choice of programs I run above because Unix has, over time, slowly added more functions to the allocator API, most of which are rarely used. Unfortunately, we can for, bleh, fortunately we can handle most of these, again with minor corner cutting, fairly easily. It's quite fun to see which software runs with this extended allocator, assuming you've got enough RAM. What does it mean to run an allocator under Cherry? Let's start by assuming you're using pure capability, henceforth pure cap cherry. 
For our purposes, this means that our 64-bit pointers become 128-bit capabilities, where the additional 64 bits contain various permissions. The main permissions we're interested in are bounds, which record the range of memory that a capability, and vitally, those capabilities derived from it, are allowed to read write from. When we compile a C program for Cherry, we're actually compiling a Cherry C program. For our purposes, the semantics of Cherry C can be thought as mostly the same as normal C semantics, though pointer types are now capability types, and hence double the width they are in normal C. Perhaps surprisingly, our bump allocator not only compiles out of the box on pure cap Cherry, both binary trees and VI run successfully. That sounds good until we start digging a bit. In order for Cherry to do something useful, capabilities need to have non-global permissions. What bounds does the capability returned by our bump allocators malloc have? The easiest way to see this is to allocate some memory and then use the Cherry API to print out the capability's lower bound and the length of the bounds. Let's allocate two blocks of memory and see what the result is. For each of the two capabilities returned by malloc, this will print the capability's address, equivalent to the address the pointer normally stores, the lower bound of the memory the capability can access, and the length of memory relative to the lower bound that the capability can read or write from. I can derive other valid capabilities from these that have different addresses, provided those addresses stay within the bounds. So you can play along with, at home. I'm going to run through an emulator of ARMS Morello built with Cherry Build, and there's a link to that. Um, you can build your own with dot slash cherry build dot pi run Morello pure clap dash D. I warn you now that the emulator isn't fast but it is more than usable for our purposes. If I run the code snippet above with first the default allocator and second our bump allocator, we'll see the following. Um, the, the cherry allocator has um, uh, sections of length four and the non-cherry allocator has sections of the size of the gigabyte. Both allocators return sensible looking addresses, but the bounds are very different. The default allocator returns capabilities whose bounds are restricted to four bytes requested above, but our bump allocator returns capabilities that can read write from one gigabyte of memory. More formally, with the default allocator, neither C1 or C2 can be derived from the other, but with the bump allocator, either capability can be derived from the other. While this isn't exactly wrong, it means we haven't gained much from Cherry. Code with access to one of these two capabilities can read or write from the same memory as the other capability, Indeed, it turns out that every block of memory our bump allocator returns will share the same bounds. The clue to where the bounds come from is that they span one gigabyte of memory. Exactly the same quantity of memory our bump allocator requested from memmap. As I suggest, mmap and cherry returns capabilities bounds are at least as big as the quantity of memory that you have requested, and our bump allocator has simply copied those bounds over unchanged to the color of malloc. What should an allocator do on Cherry PureCap? Our bump allocator works without changes on Cherry PureCap, but gives a little meaningful security improvement related to non-Cherry system. We thus need to pause for a brief philosophical interlude. What should an allocator do on Cherry PureCap? Naively, we might think we want maximum security, but even if we could define what that means, we probably couldn't achieve it. Like most things in life, software nearly always requires trade-offs. If we want more of one thing, e.g. security, we'll have to accept less of another thing, performance or ease of use. Although I'm not going to dwell on this post, there is unlikely to be uh, one true secure allocator that works well in all cases. Let's, talk, let's start with what security thought folk call threat models. In our case, let's assume that our threat model is that an external attacker might be able to take over one part of our program and then upgrade the attack 
to read all of the program's heap data. Given this threat model, we can then think about techniques and technologies that might help mitigate the threat. In our case, we have a promising technology, Cherry PureCap, and we may then decide that having the program store capabilities with the most restrictive bounds possible is the right way to mitigate the upgrade attack. That implies that allocators should return capabilities with bounds restricted to just memory allocated. Doing so will clearly make an attacker's life harder, even though it might not make it impossible. Let's adapt the bump allocators malloc so that it returns capabilities whose bounds are only allow access to the requested range of memory, some code. The main changes we've made here are at line 7 to 10 and 15, where we perform an odd-looking dance with Cherry's APIs to create a pointer with the appropriate bounds. In essence, because Cherry permissions don't have enough spare bits to represent all lower bounds, we might have to align the heap pointer to the array amount, and we may also align the requested length upwards for similar reasons. We then want to make sure that we always align future pointers to align to max align t in the normal malloc line. Finally, we return a capability with the heat pointer we want with the bounds set to those we've calculated. If I recompile our cherry ma our cherryfied malloc and run our bounds printing program again, I can see them getting capabilities whose bounds mean that they cannot be derived from each other. Yeah, yeah they do. This looks all good, but if I write this little program and run it, the program is terminated with sigprot the cherry equivalent of a segfault. Uh, and if you run it again, you get in address space security exception, core dumped, which is cool. Um, how can such a simple program cause a problem? The problem is in our original realloc. Earlier I wrote, you may also find the definition of realloc surprising because it copies however many bytes are now requested from the old to the new block. This works because our heap is contiguous. So if there's enough space for the new block, by definition, we can copy at least that many bytes from the old block. My corner cuttings come back to bite us. The problem is that we pass to realloc capabilities bounds are allowed to access four bytes, and then we try and copy eight bytes from it. Cherry quite light, rightly considered this a violation of his rules and stops the program. The fix for this is obvious. We have to know how big, how big the block of memory we want to realloc currently is. However, our simple bump allocator doesn't store that length. Adjusting it to do so wouldn't be rocket science, but it would be annoying. Fortunately, since the input capability records the length of its bounds, we can use that information to make sure we don't copy more from the input capability than we should. If nothing else, I hope this post has made allocators seem a little less magical to you. On top of that, I hope you believe that while Cherry, PureCap, or Hybrid can help you improve a program's security, it isn't magic. Just because something runs correctly in Cherry doesn't mean necessarily it's any more secure than a running on a traditional system. The adjustments we've been made to the bump allocator to take advantage of what Cherry has to offer are not huge, but they aren't merely mechanical either. As suggested, to take a full advantage of Cherry, you have to think not just about the code itself, but how that code is expected to be used. That's cool and in-depth, and you should go and read the post, because um, I missed a lot. Yeah, difficult with the, with the code examples, but yeah, I guess most people have the idea what this is about. Okay, let's jump into our news roundup here. And uh, it's the elephant in the room, at least in the newsroom, that everyone is uh, hearing about more and more. Uh, in this case, running stable diffusion on FreeBSD, so AI and all these things. Uh, and we found a tutorial for you where you can run this. Um, it's been 
written for FreeBSD 13.1, but I guess, depending on when you listen to this episode, uh, higher episode, uh, higher episode, higher versions of FreeBSD, of course, 13.02 is already out, uh, but maybe 14 is out by the time you listen to this. Anyway, uh, so this might as well just uh, work the same. So uh, they start with a couple notes. Uh, for now, this only covers those with an NVIDIA card with CUDA support. So if you have any other graphics cards, game over, at least for this part. Um, but maybe you find some uh, alternatives here or a couple of ideas just reading from the uh, GitHub tutorial they have here. So uh, you must have the Linux Solator also installed for any of this to work. Uh, it has only been tested with the default CentOS from ports, but seems to work. And this does not use the official stable diffusion repository, but the web UI created and located at automatic for ones, uh, one, 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 one. And that's another GitHub repo. And if you wish to install the official repository, none of the contents of this documentation should change other than checking out the official repo. So they start off with verifying and setting up CUDA or CUDA. This involves two steps. To first install nv-sglrun in order to check for CUDA support, which only works for FreeBSD binaries. And the second step is to build uvm underscore ioctl underscore override.c to have the same work for Linux binaries. Uh, this work has been done with shkhln. However, you pronounce that. Uh, you can see this work here in libc 6 shim. Uh, we will not use this directly, but the version used for Linux binaries below. So you install that package install libc 6 shim. And then you check for uh, NVIDIA support by running NVIDIA SMI, which would hopefully identify your card and the driver version. And uh, you now check uh, with NVIDIA-SGL run, which should also list your NVIDIA card and uh, which CUDA version it has. It now says uh, afterwards, so it finds uh, version 12.0 for CUDA version instead of mm, no idea. Ignore the driver version. Uh, the one in ports will just work fine. And from there on, you install the Linux C7 dev tools and uh, get the uvm underscore ioctl override.c from a separate source because you need to overwrite that and build that thing. They provide all the uh, options that you need to do uh, to build this uh, in the how-to, of course, so you can follow along. Then the initial setup starts with uh, two steps. Uh, missing, uh, <laughs> missing packages should be installed and choosing a path, of course. Uh, there is a package called Linux C7 libglvnd and that you need to install. And to get that, uh, they provide instructions how to do that. A little further down, uh, the installation path uh, to pick where you want to install everything. Uh, to keep things easy, we'll install everything under the same path. and Use uh, the base path going forward. And so you can just use this variable and don't have to type all the long paths again. Okay, then there is conda. Uh, you need to install mini conda from ports using package to install Linux conda and then run miniconda-installer. You need to review licenses. Yeah, I know this is new for Unix people. Uh, accept the license also with yes, and that you type in, and then enter the path where your uh, previous installation was at the base path. And then it asks some specific specifics for conda. Uh, select no there, and uh, yes to remove all the latest Linux binaries. Uh, and yeah, choose got it and then it runs the rest of the installer all fine. 
a little further down, uh, we have PyTorch. Follow this if you are looking uh, to use PyTorch. If you want to use Stable Diffusion, jump to the next section. That depends on your use case, what you are uh, intending to do with that. But they describe both PyTorch and the next part uh, about the Stable Diffusion itself in this tutorial in quite great detail. So you should be fine uh, following it along. In the Stable Diffusion web UI, you install uh, the different environments if you installed PyTorch above. It's better to use separate environments so you can avoid version clashing. So they describe how to do this for you. And uh, later on at the end, you have pretty much everything in place. But now you need models. Why you need models? No, not those kinds of models. You need models for the hugging face in this case. They provide a download link for this one. And then you uh, connect that to your uh, well, to your stable diffusion, basically. Model CKPT is the default model that will load. You can have as many as you want and load them via the command line. Fairly good, fairly straightforward, and they show you how to get this also. And that seems to be it. You can now browse to your uh, stable diffusion web UI. Uh, that's port uh, 7860 on your local host if you haven't installed it web viewable, which you shouldn't for your own testing. And use the web UI as you wish, so you can move levers around and give it prompts and say, create me a nice little picture that has these kind of characteristics. And pretty much then it should pop up something that may or may not be to your liking. Uh, they ask for uh, feedback and questions, not feedback and questions, yeah, maybe questions as well. Here in this one for any kinds of things you uh, want to have uh, that you have found on the tutorial that should be better or a bit better explained or that is unclear. Pull requests also welcome, they say at the bottom. And you can definitely find that AI has also made its way to FreeBSD after running this setup uh, successfully. Okay, a step away from the megacorps trying to drive us all into slavery, we have <laughs> self-hosting pixel-fed on OpenBSD. Then it comes from frequent, frequently covered blogger tomfatigue.net which the joke was explained to us and i have forgotten yeah it's french that's yeah, what i recall I, I remembered french but that's all i've got um in case you don't already know PixelFed is a media sharing oriented solution that federates with the fediverse using activity pub and i like it because it is also based on php not many people would say something like that this makes it quite simple to be hosted on openbsd and here's how i do this the official run-your-own-pixel-fed website documentation is not that much Linux-centric and really good. I reuse its structure, hoping the procedure produces a homage and not a plagiarism. Preparing your machine. I'm using a server that runs OpenBSD 7.3 stable. Depending on your reading timeline, you may need to adapt the following directions. I don't know when OpenBSD comes out. Um, I'm going to... This is Tom speaking. I'm going to cover the main steps, and then there's code for each of them. Um, and if you want the details, you'll be better served by reading this article from our show notes on our website, bsdnow.tv. Creating a dedicated app user. The user has its own resource class and home directory. The PHP scripts will be chroot and require their own sets of files and sockets. Install and configure dependencies, um, kind of clear. Uh, configure Redis, configure the database. They're using MariaDB. Uh, configure PHP FPM, um, set it up with his own R domain, and then run the generic no, no, installation guide, getting the pixel-fed files, get pixel-fed sources from Git, and set the proper, proper permissions. 
No, the, the dev branch shall become stable someday. Yes. Also note this symbolic links magic. It is used to be able to ch root the PHP scripts, even though PixelFed is not aware of this. Initialize PHP, configure environment variables. Um, these can contain things like the application's name, um, image optimization, the image driver, so you can feed all the images to image magic, the domain for the server, and um, stuff like that. And set up services. So there's one-time tasks, um, which need to be set up for everything, where you need to generate keys, storage, um, imports, and pixel-fed routes, um, all that magic, and then job queuing. The Lar Laravel Horizon software is used to manage queues, create and enable access to the dashboard, then run an RC script that will start it at boot time. Um, and then you need to add scheduling and periodic tasks, and then you need to handle web requests. I'll be using Nginx mostly because I don't want to add many specifics right now. Someday I may migrate to HTTPDD. HTTPD. Um, yeah. And then finally, you can expose the application to the internet. Because reasons, I'm using RealID to expose PixelFed. That's why Nginx only runs on local hosts using HTTP. RealID and HTTPT. RealID and HTTPD take care of HTTPS. Yeah, I guess so. Um, a lot of words, yeah. So many T's. Um, <laughs> from here, PixelFed should be up and running. Using a web browser, you can go to your configured FQDN and enjoy. Um, administer your website. You can activate administration. You can, you can activate registration, but they did not. Um, so I have to create man users manually. And uh, you can br browse to the PixelFed UI, log in, and start sharing images. Instagram import. I wanted to import all my IG photos to PixelFed, so I went to Instagram and requested my full archive in JSON mode. That's cool. A couple of minutes later, I got it. By default, IG import is not enabled. So browse to the config section, enable Instagram import. I've done it in my config file. Um, turn on backups, and then updating PixelFed. Updating PixelFed is currently done by pooling the dev branch and running a few PHP commands. Um, and now you're ready to share your photos in the wild. And then finally they say, I'll be posting using Joel. I'm going to say it's written by Joel. Uh, it's at the bottom of the page, Joel Carney. Uh, I'll be using Joel at chicklens.foolbazaar.eu. My Instagram feed has been imported. I just need to edit a few descriptions and alt text. Feel free to browse it. Come say hello and let me know about your account. Thank you for sharing this. I, it'd be great to see more stuff in the Fediverse. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't like the word Fediverse. Yeah, it's a thing now. After I don't like it. Twi it's not a good word. After uh, well, I, <laughs> I thought Bloggerverse was cheesy enough. We didn't need to keep going. Mm -hmm. Oh. Alrighty, uh, creating a time capsule instance with Samba, FreeBSD, and ZFS is what Dan Langell has been uh, blogging about recently-ish. And so we thought this would be a good idea for a entry in this show. And let's start here. He describes the setup um, uh, in another article where he has uh, moved his time capsule instance from a FreeBSD host into a jail. Uh, so this time, or today, uh, when he wrote the article, uh, he's going to create a new time capsule which uses Samba instead of AFP, the Apple File Sharing Protocol, or Apple File Protocol. Why? Samba seems to be the preferred solution because AFP has been deprecated. Oh, okay, I should make note of that because I also have to set up with uh, my own time machine. Um, 
<laughs> better to have a tutorial uh, and even better if Dan has it because it's very detailed. So uh, AFP has been deprecated, it still works, but let's go Samba. All right. Not covered in this post, but recommended snapshots of your data sets on a regular basis. Yep. Uh, he likes Sanoid for that. That way, if your backup gets corrupted somehow, you can roll back to a recent snapshot and try again. Hopefully, you don't lose your backup or your back history. Or throw your backup. Yeah, probably backup. Uh, in this post, we were using FreeBSD 13.2 and Samba 4.16.11. But I guess, again, higher versions should also work. If not, then uh, fall back to those. Uh, this is a summary. Uh, he's not going into details about creating a jail, configuring, etc. This is only about the Samba in the jail. That said, this is the jail configuration. So he basically sets his nick and provides um, the IP for the jail. Uh, and that's basically the yeah jail configuration that pretty much uh, is default nothing special here for the samba part uh samba 4.16.11 uh used and you need to edit the config file use a local etc smb4.conf and what does he do here he does a couple things remote announce to that same address no to a different one ah interesting ah that must be his uh time capsule maybe uh, security settings, all fine. You can find detailed descriptions, of course, in the Samba man page. So basically, uh, <laughs> oh, nice, he creates a uh, fruit, right? Fruit colon time machine max size equals one terabyte. ZFS core, ZFS auto create equals yes. Fruit locking none, uh, and so on. A couple uh, more metadata related options. So that, with these settings, you should be able to have Samba set up for a time machine. But that's not all. The above needs to be updated after he gets things running. It's now incomplete. Okay, maybe Dan will edit those or post a follow-up. Uh, then you create the user passwords. He will create the Samba login for each device, which will be backed up. Here's the first one. Note that if he first created the uh, DVL Pro 03 using add user, that's for his setup. Actually, he just copy-pasted entries from VIPW in the other time capsule instance. Okay, well, he knows that's still working. If you're not duplicating an existing entrance or instance, you probably want to run add user before running the command. Yeah, please use add user because that has a couple checks in there to make sure that it's not clashing with an existing account. So he creates that user and then uh, thinks the summer passwords are stored here in vardb as samba4 slash private. Yep, could very well be. Uh, then he enables and starts Samba using service Samba underscore server start and uh, enable first. And it checks the configuration file, doesn't find any uh, issues. Uh, only some mentioned something about the kernel module not being loaded, but requiring fdeskfs, but uh, that should be easy to look uh, after. And it seems to work. Uh, so he mounted, ah, he needed to add mount.defs to his jail configuration, so that it uh, connects to that. Very fine. The jail configuration at the top of this post includes that already, so that's already been covered. So after restarting, Samba was running, and uh, his PS output shows that. Very good. So now he needs to do a couple of nullfs mounts for his datasets, uh, because where does he backup? In his case, he wants to nullfs mounts the existing datasets using the other time capsule instance. The clients only run on one backup at a time. And that's uh, that's it. That this is now very specific to his setup, but you can look at the, the post to see what uh, he does there. A referral, 
Uh, this just in from Alex Rosenberg. Why not run both daemons from the same jail? Great idea. However, I've come so far, or too far. First, I want to prove that this can be done over NullFS in separate jails. Then I'll do it in the same jail, then retire the AFP version. Okay. So now he tries to set up in Samba on his Mac. So that's fairly straightforward. He went to Finder, pressed Command-K, specified the Samba URL for his uh, Samba server, entered the credentials, and then, boop, it failed. Whoops. Checking warlock messages, he found that something uh, didn't initialize properly, some modules, these were config options present in the TrueNAS Samba configuration, which did not work. Ah, okay. In his uh, Samba instance, he probably won't encounter this. He adjusted the config, restarted Samba, repeated, Samba configuration at the top of this post should just work. And now Samba's um, config file or config is uh, accepted by the time machine set up on the Mac and happily backs up the machine now. He had a couple of screenshots in there to show that it's actually running and does regular backups in an hourly fashion. And it closes with, this is great, this is great, he says. And there are a few bumps, jlconfig, Samba configuration, but in general, it just worked. Cool. That's definitely good to know. And maybe I have something to do over the weekend, switching to Samba as well. <laughs> we'll see. Wonderful. We spend a lot of time worrying about gigabits and and petabits and, and terabits. But this week, we have a, a nibble's worth of bits, of beastie bits. And first up, we have a tweet that links to a wiki page. So I'm just going to talk about the wiki page. And it's the OpenZFS Developer Summit 2023. And... It's an announcement, but when you hear this, it will be in the past. Um, come join us for our 11th annual OpenZFS Developer Summit. This in-person event will be held in San Francisco, October 16th, 16th and 17th, uh, 2023. As in the past, there will be a day of talks related to OpenZFS and how it's used by our partner companies, a hackathon, and lots of socializing with OpenZFS community members. Cool. This will be an in-person event, and we will ha not have any requirements related to COVID-19 to be held at... 731 Market Street, second floor of San Francisco. I don't know why I read the address because you won't be there. They have a list of presentations lined up. So pulling from there, um, they've got a talk about Fast Dejupe from this podcast's very own Alan Jute. Um, <laughs> ZIA, uh, Accelerate ZFS Compression, check something in RAID Z. ID mapped mount support in ZFS and its applications. Lunch, but there's no presenter for it. Uh, RAID Z expansion, uh, opens ZFS at scale learning challenges and awesome customers um, from Sam Akinson from AWS and a shared log pool, um, which is about ZFS. Ooh. It's not some weird party. Um, yeah. and then, then they will go to the reception <laughs> of the hotel or there is a reception for the guests. Uh, to find out, you'd have to be there. Um, but if you're hearing this, you either where you want. So yeah, have fun. It's great to see events happening again. Yeah, they're probably streamed or recorded afterwards, so you can uh, see all the good things uh, being developed on OpenZFS. Very nice. But the conferences uh, have, well, this year started again, and we just returned from EuroBSDCon 2023 in Portugal, and Patrick McAvoy and his crew of uh, elves or uh, other helpful people have been quick to provide a bunch of recordings from the actual conference already. Uh, at this point, we have 29 videos when we uh, record this on the YouTube channel. And it's providing a nice overview of what people have uh, talked at the conference or things you missed because you were in the other room 
which was equally exciting. So there you can just uh, dig around and see what's new in this uh, FreeBSD or OpenBSD, NetBSD space, people who gave conference talks. And yeah, very nice. If you couldn't make it to Coimbra this year, then you might want to check this out uh, for yeah, individual I, talks. I, I guess this is how I'm balancing my FOMO for, for not going to Coimbra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a nice conference. Okay, next we have a tweet from uh, Massimo. Um, today, in 1982, in a posting made to the Carnegie Mellon Bulletin Board, Professor Scott Fallman proposes the first known use of emoticons. Remember those? Mm. While they became famous in the 80s and beyond, the, original, the origin remained unknown until 2002, when the original message was retrieved from backup tape. And there's a screenshot of, uh, of an email um, from Scott E. Fallman. I propose that the following character sequence for joke markers, colon, hyphen, close bracket. Read it sideways. Actually, it is probably more economical to mark things that are not jokes given current trends. For this, use colon, hyphen, open bracket. Read it sideways. Mm. How, how we have grown. Yeah. Oh, look at all those people who never grew up with this and are now using emoticons or emojis. emojis. They're using emoji. Yeah. They don't, they wouldn't, they're probably never going to hear the word emoticon. Uh, don't tell us if you never heard it before <laughs> yeah oh well it's the way of the future and uh, the last thing I have uh, we have here in the Beastie Bits is solving the same problem all over again uh, this is from Fred RB's blog and I found it interesting enough to uh, cover it here and it's not too long so uh, solving the same problem uh, just to give you an idea uh They've gotten into the habit of solving the same problem multiple times. Whenever they start working on a new feature or fixing a bug, they revert their code until they write a solution that they're happy with. Uh, so the first code is always a draft. Their mental model is similar to writing a text. The first pass will rarely get published. Each section gets many rewrites. Sometimes the entire thing gets thrown out. They don't get nitpicky about the choice of words until after the structure is in place. The same thing happens with code. They rewrite it until the code organization feels right, only then they start working on making the code tidy, like adding additional comments, naming things better, and removing redundancies. So in, uh, as a list, developing a new feature, a bug fix, or a new project looks like this. Write production code. Number two is validate behavior, ideally by having an automated test. Third is revert the production code. That's hard for people. Uh, the fourth is rewrite the solution, making sure validation in number two still passes, right? Because you've written a test for it. The fifth is go back to number three, which is revert the production code until satisfied with the structure. This could be multiple iterations. And the sixth is tidy up the code. There's a bit more and footnotes in the article, so check this out if you're interested in this kind of development. And uh, yeah, try it out. Maybe it helps you. Um, by Vi Hart, um, and she linked to someone else who introduced her to this concept, but it won't load for me. Uh, it's going to be my internet. Um, doing something 50 times, so uh. deliberately taking something like a trivial problem and they implemented FizzBuzz 50 unique times um, and doing that as a way to experiment with ideas and be creative and expose yourself to learning. Um, it's a great article. It's in the show notes now. Benedict did it while I was speaking. Yeah, it's so live that we just can't help each other. 
Imagine um, if you could hear us live. It's redirecting you to something, and I don't get there. Okay, we'll be having it. In you the might show. have to check the internet archive. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I blame my. I think I'm using all of my internet capacity to see your face right now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's all. No, no, the website seems <laughs> slow, or that no, doesn't load for me. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that band then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Let's jump into the feedback and questions. We didn't have them for a while, but now they're back. And the first is uh, something I should read because it's coming in from a German. Are, are, are you going to read it I in guess. German? Yeah, they have uh, luckily provided a translation. I guess JT did that. Thank you. Uh, so let me read the, the English one and you read the German part. Or no, the other way around. I'm reading the German right now. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. But are you understanding it? I mean, I... I not too hard wait let me let me just do some very quick word counting <laughs> between the german and the english part no i just <laughs> i mean it's like a hundred words it probably take me like i have to look up a lot of words here mm. <laughs> yeah okay let's uh i read the english one <laughs> the translation reads hello and the, the, translation, the translation is quite accurate so i could confirm that hello i was recommended your email from c3re uh, i have an open bst firewall at home and i'm stuck i'm on vacation right now and spent the last three days with pf.conf unfortunately i still don't know exactly what i'm doing do you have any kind of contact from someone who would be willing to look over with me like via rust desk or mumble i just want to release an ip via ipv6 wireguard and give the vpn connection access to certain ips in the network possibly still forwarding to another vpn thank you this is this is far too specific a question to ask people for help on with the internet um you probably need to find someone in real life you either need to give an example of what you're trying to do or get someone to sit with you at a computer and walk you through it but don't we, didn't we have some uh, WireGuard setups in the past? For, uh, yeah, like I'm sure you can find a ton of examples online of people doing similar things. And so that yeah. would be the way to do it is find an example of how to start and then start trying to figure out what's wrong. Um, you could try speaking to people in IRC or or Discord or something, but if you yeah. just ask them this question, they'd be like, well, we can't help you. We don't know what the hell you're doing. Uh, FreeBSD forums maybe also having some tutorials that you could adapt well, it is an open BSD firewall, so they probably would just say go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's go still uh, a different OS. Mm. <laughs> no, just stay with uh, that. That's already quite a good start. It's, so, it's great. Thank you for the question, but it's yeah, 
We need uh, some we, interactivity to help, and you can't get that through a podcast. I mean, you can't have a response in a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, that's quite the latency. Uh, Chess by mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pigeons are on the way. No, uh, try to ask uh, on IRC or other um, messengers or messaging services that are a bit more real-time. But thanks for uh, writing in. Next up, we have some feedback from John Baldwin. Uh, clearly, Ooh. I said something wrong enough that he wrote it was quite a long email. So I will, uh-huh. I, will, I will read for John, and then John can be confused hearing me say his words because it can't happen very often. Uh-huh. A question on episode 520 asked about cross-compiling a kernel module from source with target arch equals arm v7. Here are a couple of options one could use. Build the module as part of a kernel build, making use of local module stuff. By default, make build kernel will look in user local sys modules. Any files or subdirectories listed here will be treated as a directory that builds kernel modules. For example, I use this to build drmkmod as part of my native build kernel on my laptop by cloning cloning the drmkmod git repo into my home directory and then creating a symlink from user local sys modules drmkmod to my git clone. So one option huh. is that you could create a symlink user local sysmodules foo that points to your des- desired kernel module source directory. Then any make build any make build kernel install kernel invocations, including cross builds, will pick it up. However, if you don't want to build the module on your host system only for cross builds, then you can set local modules dir uh, to override the default user local sysmodules. The only trick is that the build will assume every file under whatever alternative directory you want to use as a kernel module source directory. So you need a clean directory that only contains kernel module builders or similar to kernel modules. For example, you could create path to modules as an empty directory and then store the build directory as a subdirectory in that. Um, then make build kernel target arch equals rmv7 local modules dir equals we build my module and install kernel module will install it. Build the module standalone. This one is a bit trickier, but doable. This is easiest if you have the result of make install world handy. What you would need to pass is dester for install world install kernel. For this case, you want to tell the compiler you are cross compiling explicitly via dash target, and you want to tell it where to find its headers via dash sysroot. You will also probably need to tell the build system that you are using a different architecture and where the kernel source tree is located. This will be a bit different though, as you won't set target, but machine directly. This is untested, but assuming you've installed your world previous to slash arm slash world, and that your source tree is at slash arm slash source, I think you could do something like this in your kernel module build directory. Give an example. It may be that for the kernel module build, the dash dash sys root isn't needed. To build a user program that uses bsd.prog.make, you would use the above command line, but without a sister, and it would need the dash dash sysroot for sure. Cross-building user programs, I usually leave the machine bits off and just set CC as it's often good enough, but kernel modules probably have machine-specific C flags that you probably need to do machine for a kernel build. From our show notes, this reply will be linked, as all of our feedback is, um, because it's quite technical and you have a hard time getting it from my audio. But there's examples in here. Um, so yeah, if the person who asked this question for episode 520 wants to follow up here, there's been a wonderful answer provided by John, including an experimental untested solution that might work. Mm. It might just work first try. Cool. Strange things yeah. do happen. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah. <laughs> we should do more cross-compiling. <laughs> Not that we can... We need to answer more questions wrong, and then John will be alone. <laughs> so people will, yeah, correct other people on the internet. 
Excellent. Last if but you, not least is... If you want to hear oh. more from John Baldwin, you could listen to the interview we did him at EuroBSDCon 2022. Um, oh. I don't know the episode number. Uh, yeah, uh, last year around this time. So 365 episodes back? No. <laughs> Something That's not like just that. guess. And people can Google. Yeah, right. Uh, last but not least is Patrick McAvoy uh, about 3D printing. So he writes, hello, Tom, Alan, Benedict, and JT Squared. <laughs> All right. A question that came up with at the last NiceBug meeting. Has anyone gotten any of those low-end generic 3D printers going on a BSD? We had a member who is well-versed in rolling their own software and is no technical slouch, but was bedeviled with the problems getting a low-end 3D printer up and running. They asked at the meeting if anyone in the group had any luck with such a device, and I wanted to throw the question to a wider audience. Excellent idea. Seems the unit is full of generic controller chips that low-end devices use. I think $12 single board items you find on AliExpress, Amazon, etc., and had some support by different Linux distros, but little to no support on the BSDs. Mm. Regarding the chips, they said, these low-end chips are so ubiquitous there, and probably 10 of them in the bar right now, controlling all sorts of stuff. Sorry, I have um, no more details like model numbers in this question secondhand, but I thought something might come of the asking. Hope you're all well, Patrick. I, I mean, like most of these 3D printers, most of these devices are speaking to a uh, microcontroller over USB serial. So it, it shouldn't mean there's anything particularly Linux specific about what they're doing. Um. 3D printers are truly horrific devices and they they probably signify the downfall of mankind and the rise of robots that will kill us. They're much oh. worse than, than laser cars and I made a laser car kill itself the other week. Um, that said, um, yeah, I, I think it should be okay. Um, a lot of these things just pretend to be an Arduino. It just depends what the firmware is. I mean, it's kind of a, a vague question, but... If they look at the Linux software, assuming the Linux software is open source or there's open source software that can drive it, then you probably just need to do some tailoring for serial libraries. I find that um, a lot of Linux stuff and stuff written in Python for serial, it doesn't know that for USB serial and FreeBSD we use TTY, um, um, capital U, zero, or um, CUA, capital U, zero, like that form of device names. So that's pretty uncommon. And so... I I patched some software to fix this um, this summer so I could write, to free, write from FreeBSD to update the firmware on a microcontroller. Um, the flower badge at CCC Camp is what it was. Um, yeah, that's sort of a common thing. But normally when you work through these problems, you'll get things going. Um, they could maybe actually try running the Linux software on FreeBSD. I would assume that the time-dependent parts are running on a microcontroller because Linux, I mean, no general purpose operating system is going to keep up with the what you need to do in the end a lot of these 3d printers are um some very clever software around a very simple protocol for moving ahead in three dimensions and so they just tell us where the step remote is where to go and that's normally a serial interface so it should be possible it's definitely not an astoundingly hard problem it might not you might not get any return on the time but then you might be also be able to see you're the first person running bsd under 3d printer so yeah good luck to them yeah so you didn't know that, but, but last week's episode with uh, Jason Topner and I, we had an article there called 3D Printing on OpenBSD. Yes, that's a thing. That was on Undeadly.org. So if you uh, listen to the previous week's episode by the time this was recorded, yeah. So 
uh, there is an article there for 3D printing on OpenBSD, which may get you there. And um, we're, it's we're, just a nice reconnect to last week's episode. <laughs> but yeah, recording-wise, we could connect those together. Um, but were they... I don't know. My, 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 sorry. Um, that's, yeah, that's episode uh, 528. Uh, yeah, so program. They're, they're doing... Um, design from OpenBSD and you, you can totally do the design side from FreeBSD that's not a problem um, but the control software is maybe a bit more faff um, okay yeah given that yeah it may be uh, since this is not a Prusa this is a, a small oh, no, they have a Prusa slice support so cool maybe you can do the printing from OpenBSD as well yeah hey worth trying so yeah and if you get somewhere then by all means uh, let us know then we can share it also with the wider world and uh, yeah, we all benefit from that. Or more people will get into those. Like Tom said, I will probably uh, be interested in getting one just to print a couple of nice desserts. Do you want to see the minute? I've got seven. We have, I know. We have one at uh, uh, Computer Science Lab in the university. But um, they're, yeah. they're really not the Neil Stevenson magic you thought they would be. They're, not yet. Yeah. It's just dreadful. I just want a couple ne- of desserts printed. Be. Anyway. Unless you want to eat bits of plastic. <laughs> Yeah, well, a couple uh, things could be done already. So definitely, I'm sorry to seem so down on 3D printing. I've just this laser cart really annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, very frustrating <laughs> if you don't get what you want. So we leave you with that. Uh, not before uh, saying thanks and asking you to take a look at our, or if you're interested, joining us at uh, other BSD fans in our Telegram channel on t.me slash bsd now you can also send us questions comments show ideas feedback any kinds of things that you want us to know to feedback at bsdnow.tv or if you want to support this show and i can't think of why not then check out our patreon page patreon.com slash bsd now yeah i i will say that our telegram is incredibly quiet right now and everyone that joins does a does a manual capture and everyone who comes through i really i'm really rooting for you as you mm. try to look at a picture and figure out what the numbers are and Ooh, only one okay. person has failed since I joined the Telegram. So we've only had one bot. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So we'll be back with another episode next week. And until then, stay safe and enjoy. <laughs>